Well, hello, Pastor Matt here. Just want to take a moment to say thank you for tuning in to this message. We here at New Life Baptist Church hope that in making these resources available to the public, that we'll help to edify the body of Christ at large, and that you personally will increase in your knowledge of God, leading to a deeper love for Him. Now, what you're about to listen to is a teaching lesson from our Wednesday night study series entitled, What is God Like? A Study of the Attributes of the Almighty. Well, good. All right, we on? Is this, thing, is this thing on? Is this thing working? We thank you all for um, bearing with us as we figure out this whole live stream situation. We will uh, we'll power through tonight. We'll just blame it on um, the, the storm, okay? Um, thank you all for joining us tonight. As you saw in that message, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. So I hope that you've already turned in your Bible there. If not, I'll give you just a moment to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 29 through 28. Romans chapter 8, 29 through 28. And we'll get there in just a second. We have uh, one or two studies left over after tonight. Uh, We've been studying, in case this is your first time um, joining us on a Wednesday night, we've been studying the attributes of God uh, for quite a while now. I think we're at like 13 weeks now. So we've been doing this for a little bit of time. And I don't know about you, but this has really, really been extremely beneficial in my life. Wednesday nights, just so you know, as we move forward, Wednesday nights will be reserved for our more in-depth studies. So um, Sundays, you know, we'll be doing our sermons and we're doing um, sequential preaching, just preaching through the Bible. And then on Wednesday evenings, we're going to be doing more in-depth more thought-out, deeper studies. But I know that you're all smart people, and you can handle it. Uh, we'll, I'll do my best to provide you know, the, the points on the screen and the sermon references. But I want you to be prepared for that. You see, it, it's important that we take the time to understand what it is that, that God has called us to. It's important that we understand the gospel Um, There's so much more to the gospel than just, you know, Jesus died for your sins. That is profound, and that is important, and we need to know that. But that's not all. There's so much more that goes into this, and I have become thoroughly convinced through my own life and through seeing fruitful ministries around me that the more you know the gospel, and the greater confidence you have in the word of God, the greater confidence you have in life. So not just, it's not just to fill our heads with knowledge. It's really for real life application. So that whenever you're going through a storm, and you're having a hard time in life, or you're suffering, or you have a bad day, you can turn to the beautiful truths that are found in the scriptures because you have taken the time to take a deep dive to understand these things. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about the foreknowledge of God. 
the foreknowledge of God. As we said Sunday, we want to be a church that is gospel-centered. And as such, we need to know what God has done in the gospel and through the gospel. I mean, what is it? How does he accomplish it? What, what does it mean? What are the details of the gospel? And in studying the foreknowledge of God, we're going to get some uh, better understanding of that and add a, some more paint and some more color to the picture that we've been drawing. So tonight's study will be a little bit different than normal. Usually we have just a, a couple of different verses that we look at, but tonight we're going to really focus mostly on Romans chapter 8, 29 through 30. So I hope by now you're there. If you would, take a moment and stand with me right there where you're at, and let's read the Word of God. This is God's Word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Oh, sovereign God, I come before you tonight, Lord, and I just pray that for whoever's listening right now, God, the few of us that are here in this room, Father, that you help us to push all the distractions of the day and, and from this evening out of our minds, God, and that you would bring all of our thoughts into captivity and that you would help us to be able to, to focus on you in this hour, God. I pray that you would illuminate by the power of the Spirit the truths of your word and the reality of who you are, God, so that we can come into a deeper knowledge of you, so that we can glorify you and worship you all the days of our life, God. I pray that your word goes forth from my mouth, not my opinion. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So, let's dive right in. We're going to look at a few notes from verse 28. Number one, Paul says, All things work together for the good of those who love God. I'm sure you've never heard this verse before, right? This is the first time you've ever heard Romans 8:28. I'm sure of it because I've never seen it on any coffee mugs or bumper stickers or uh, paintings on people's walls or t-shirts or anything else like that. And I, I hope that the sarcasm I'm using right now is, is making its way through the screen because, of course, you've heard this passage before. It is one of the most popular passages that you can find in the Scripture. People love to quote it. But the thing is that we often take it out of context and we just kind of assume that this it says it in the Bible, so it applies to everybody. Whoever reads this passage, it's for everyone. But that's not the case. This, this promise that we find here is not for just anybody. This is not a promise for churchgoers. This is not a promise 
for Sunday school teachers. This is not a promise for pastors. This isn't a promise for just anybody. No, this, this promise is specific, and it's to a specific group of people. But also, this is not a promise that all things work together for your Mercedes-Benz. You know, that's kind of how we read this verse, isn't it? You're going through a hard time. Don't worry, brother or sister. All things work together for your good. You'll get that promotion. You'll get that new house. You'll get that thing that you really want that's not God. That's how we read this verse, isn't it? And that is not the promise that's being found here. So if I promise my wife that tomorrow I'm going to take her to a particular barbecue spot, which she would hate because she's not a barbecue fan. But if somebody else heard that promise that I was making to her that was standing nearby, and they said, oh, guess what? Tomorrow Matt is taking us to this barbecue spot. Well, that wouldn't be true, would it? You would show up tomorrow and you would be sorely vexed because you would be buying your own brisket. Because why? That promise was a specific promise for a specific purpose. So we can't take the promises of Scripture and rip them out of their context and say, yes, hallelujah, this is mine. So who is this promise meant for then? As we see from the first few words in verse 28, it is for those who love God. That's a little simple though, isn't it? Because who are those who love God? See, there are plenty of people today who will easily and quickly profess, sure, I love God. Of course I love God. I love Jesus. Yay, hallelujah. But their lives display something entirely different. It's as God said, they confess me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. And it's not a simple profession. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Yet, this promise is a little bit more specific than that, isn't it? It's more than just simple obedience, right? Because the Pharisees had strict obedience. They obeyed the Mosaic law with incredible zeal. But we all know that Jesus was always correcting and rebuking the Pharisees. So it's more than just, well, I love God because I obey certain words and I adhere to strict religion. It's more than that. So then who is this text talking about? Well, the last part of the verse says, for those who are called according to his purpose. You can read it yourself, verse 28, for those who are called according to his purpose. To his purpose. This is what theologians refer to as an effectual call. It is an inward call, not a shout, as I sometimes do from up here. It's not a shout, it is an inward call that efficaciously draws the called. In other words, this is not a call that goes unanswered. This is an inward call to the very core of your being, your spirit, that is answered. It's never sent to voicemail. It is an irresistible 
call that brings people into himself. Now you see, we can't cause that call, can we? This is God's calling of a person. Now as we look at verse uh, 29, we find in this passage what we call the golden chain. It is called the golden chain of salvation. It tells us the order in which God saves his people. Look at it with me. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Our focus tonight is not so much going to be on this golden chain, but rather that first link of this chain at the very beginning of verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. And now we will arrive at this wonderful truth of God's attributes on display in salvation, namely his foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge exactly? Well, first I'm going to start with what it's not. I know this is kind of a backwards way of defining something, but let's first define what it's not, because a lot of people will say about foreknowledge that what it means is that before God created the heavens and the earth, that he looked down the proverbial tunnel of time, and that he could see who would choose his son. That he was looking down into the future, or maybe he got into the DeLorean, and he drove out into the future, and he saw this person said yes to the gospel, this person said yes, this person raised their hand during that church service, this person checked yes on the box of salvation, those are the people that I foreknow, and I then predestined to salvation. But that's not what this passage is saying. It's not true for several reasons. Number one, we learn from our study of the omniscience of God that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's never looked into the future or the past or to the left or to the right and ever learned anything. God is all-knowing, all on his own. If he were looking into the future and learning anything new, then God's not really omniscient. Now, is he? He would just be really smart and really, really knowing, but not all-knowing. No, God knows everything. But secondly, if it were true that God did look down the tunnel of time to see who would choose salvation to then predestined them to salvation, do you know what he would find? Well, let's just ask the Bible. Romans 3, 10 through 11, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So do you see that? If he were looking down the tunnel of time to see who would choose Jesus, what he would find is that no one seeks for God. So then he would be looking down the tunnel of time and sending Jesus to the cross to die for no one. And then his, his sacrifice is now pointless and, and just frivolous. And why did you do that? But that's not what happened, is it? No, we know that from our study of God's sovereign election, 
a few weeks ago that we are incapable of coming to God on our own. So he wouldn't see us choosing his son if he looked down the tunnel of time. But lastly, this is not how this word is used throughout Scripture. So we're going to look here in just a moment at a few instances of how this word is used throughout the Scriptures. Now I know that you look at the word foreknowledge and you say, well, it says for, and then it says knowledge. And I know that for means like before, and knowledge means I know something, so it just means that I knew something before. And that's true in a sense, but that's not entirely what foreknowledge means. It's deeper than that. And I I hope that you grasp this because I, I just know that if you grasp this, it will change your appreciation and your love for God. See, our passage says that those whom he foreknew He predestined unto salvation. We know that not everyone will be saved, so that cannot be the meaning here. That he just knows some some information. So to help us uh, to get a full understanding here, we're going to look at three facets of the foreknowledge of God. So let's look at our definition first of all, shall we? Our definition is for foreknowledge is that it is God's loving and knowing of an individual in a personal, intimate, and redemptive sense from all eternity. Did you catch that? It is God's loving and knowing of an individual in a personal, intimate, and redemptive sense from all eternity. So before the foundations of the world, we can look at Psalm 1-6. So as we look at these three facets of the knowledge of God, we're going to first consider point number one, which is that it is personal. We're going to kind of break down our definition today. So the first point is that it's personal. Psalm 1, verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, you see, it's clear in that text. The the way of the wicked will perish, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So it's clear in this text that God does know the righteous in a different way than he knows the wicked, but he knows information about the wicked. You following me? He knows some information because he's calling them the wicked. He knows that they're wicked, and so they're going to perish. So he knows both the righteous and the wicked, but he knows them in a different way. Maybe this will help to shed some more light on it. Matthew 7.23, Jesus speaking, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, there's a way that Jesus does know these people because he's calling them workers of lawlessness. So he knows something about them. It's not that God knows some people, but he doesn't know some other people. This is a deeper level of knowledge that we're talking about here. 
but he does know everything. In a sense, he does have foreknowledge about everybody, right? Because he knows all that there is to know. But there's a deeper level of knowing that he knows of the righteous, as we saw in Psalm 1, 6. There is a way of knowing that is meaning that we have a relationship. See, I might know a lot of stats about LeBron James or the Dallas Cowboys, but if I were to go knock on Jerry Jones's door right now, what would he say? Who are you? Get out of here. I don't know you. I could say, well, I know all this stuff about you, Jerry. I know that you're worth this million, billion dollars and blah, 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 blah. I know all this stuff about you, Jerry. He would say, yeah, I, I don't know you. Why? Because we don't have a relationship. So the type of knowledge that is talking about in foreknowledge is more than just statistics or information. It is a personal level of knowledge. We really see this in John chapter 17, verse 25. Jesus is praying to God. And he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. So you see, Jesus has a relationship with the Father. This is the level of knowledge that we're talking about with foreknowledge. That he knows in a personal sense. He knows them personally. Jesus certainly personally knows the Father. Are you tracking with me? Have I lost you yet? Are you completely confused? I didn't get a yes or a no, so I'm not sure. <laughs> so, I know that this is challenging. And I don't want you to tune out because it's challenging and think that this is over your head. Because these truths are found in the scriptures. So I, we're not just looking at just you know, Harvard-level doctrine just because I want to feel like I'm smart. But these are words that are found in the scriptures. And so we, we don't want to, we, we do this so that way whenever we read these words in the scriptures, we don't just gloss over it. Or we don't just assume we know what it means. We need to really know what it means so that we can understand what the Bible is saying. So we're going to move on. The second facet of the foreknowledge of God, the other aspect, the other part, the other, the other part of this, the other function of the foreknowledge of God is that it is intimate. It's a deep knowledge of a person, an intimate type of knowledge of a person. Now, believe it or not, the way that this word is used in the Old Testament actually is referring to a physical, intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now, I, I don't know about you, 
But this is clearly a different type of knowledge, a different type of knowing. Like there's knowing a person and then there's knowing a person. You understand? Hopefully I don't have to be too much more specific than that. But there is, Adam could not have done, known enough facts about Eve that then caused her to bear Cain. Do you understand? We understand how this works, okay? This is a close intimacy. That's how this word is being used. And in Matthew 1, 24 through 25, it speaks of Joseph, that Joseph did not know his wife, Mary, until she had conceived Jesus. He didn't know her. He was not physically intimate with his wife, Mary. He knew Mary, right? They had a relationship, obviously. They were betrothed. But he didn't know her, have that physical intimacy with his wife until after Jesus was born. This is how this word is being used in the scriptures. Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm. If we had time tonight, we would just read it because it's just so incredible. It has so much in there that will teach you about the foreknowledge and the sovereignty of God because it will go on to say that God knows our sleeping and our waking, that God knows our thoughts, our ways, our words, and even our days. This is a very personal, intimate knowledge of us that only someone who truly loves you would know. You see, there are certain parts of my life, of my day, of who I am, of my personality, that only my wife, Gabby, knows. And nobody else knows. Because I have a deep, personal, intimate relationship with her. And this is the kind of knowing that we are discovering in the foreknowledge of God. And the third facet of God's foreknowledge is that it is redemptive. This foreknowledge culminates in God knowing us in a redemptive manner. In Jeremiah 1.5, God says, Before you were born, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Think about that for a second. Before you were born, God knew you. But he didn't just like know you in the sense that he knew how tall you would be or what your favorite uh, soda would be. God had a personal, intimate understanding and knowledge of you in such a way that he set you apart to be his holy and beloved. Before you were ever born, how marvelous is this truth? How incredible is that? We see evidence here of knowing, meaning, choosing. Because he says to Jeremiah, before you were born, I consecrated you. That's what that word means, is to set apart, to set aside, to choose out of. 
And surely the same rings true of those who God saves. Ephesians 1.4 says that we have been chosen in him since before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless. And people will say, well, no, I chose God that day whenever I got out of my seat and went to the front of the church and prayed that prayer. No, you were saved in your seat before you ever got up, before you entered the building. God had set you apart and said, this one is mine. Before you were born, how can we even begin to grasp this? Now we can see that not everyone is known or chosen in this manner. As we return to our text, verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Let me ask you, are all predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God? Of course not. No. That is an easy no. So this is not a promise for the whole world, but only for those whom God has foreknown. Who God, since before the foundations of the world, as it says in Ephesians 1.4, has set his affections upon with love, as it says in Jeremiah 1.5. Now how can we be sure? Verse 30 shows us that those who were predestined were called. And remember, I was telling you, this is an effectual call. This is not a shout. This isn't like, hey, let me call out to that person. This is an effectual call that is an inward call of the heart that God draws you into himself by his spirit. It's what theologians have, like I said earlier, dubbed the effectual call. This call brings you into salvation. And then you are justified. Justified means that you have right standing in the eyes of the Father. So let's ask, will, will all people go to the grave in right standing before God? No. Only those who have been called, who have been predestined, who have been foreknown, will be justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Now glorified is in the past tense, right? As though this happened before. Verse 30, you can find it. He justified and then glorified. This is referring to on the last day when all of us bodily resurrect from the grave and we are given brand new bodies. The scripture calls it glorified bodies. And we will be in glory with the Lord forever. And surely not everyone will be resurrected on the last day to be in glory with God the Father, right? No. Some will be resurrected only to enter into an everlasting punishment. Now I want to ask you in this passage here, go ahead and take a second and look back over it 
And now, and we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let me ask you, where are you in that text? Where is the part in this text where you are responsible for your salvation? If you find it, email it to me. Text it to me. It's not there. God saves. Salvation is of the Lord. We receive salvation. But we don't choose salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that you don't choose anything in your life. The irony and the the tension that exists in the gospel is that, yes, God chose you first, so it's not your choosing that saves you, and yes, you still need to choose God. Ask the most brilliant theologian on the planet. They won't be able to really give you an explanation. But that's how it works. We see it right here. And we also know that people are always called to repentance. Repent and believe the gospel. But what is the gospel? It's right here. That those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. That's it. So yes, is this a little difficult to wrap your head around? Yeah. But it's the truth that God is the one who saves you. Salvation is of the Lord. And again, I want to reiterate, this does not absolve each of us from personal responsibility. You know why? Because if you die in your sins, you will go to hell where you suffer eternally for those sins that you willingly committed. It was still your sins that you willingly committed that Jesus Christ bore on the cross. So, yes, you still are responsible for living a life of holiness. And you are still responsible for the actions and the choices that you make and the the words that you say. This does not absolve you. After all, God says, be holy, for I am holy. He never says, don't worry about it. I got it all figured out. I'll keep you until the end, and then you'll be in heaven one day. Until then, live it up. And I would go as far as saying that if that's the mentality that you take on upon hearing this message, I would be willing to wager that you're not of God. That you don't have God's Spirit within you. Because if you have God's spirit within you, you're going to see this and you're going to hear this and you're going to say, he can have it all. 
I don't want my sin anymore. Why would I want my sin when his love is this magnificent? So if you're listening right now, I don't ever, ever, ever want to assume that everybody who listens is in Christ. So if you're listening right now and you're not in Christ, I want to plead with you to be reconciled to Christ. Your sins are a heinous crime in the eyes of a holy God. But he has made a way for you to be made right with him. If you, this very hour, if you are filled with, just covered in your sin, it doesn't matter how, how wretched of a sinner you are right now. If you look to Jesus and you put your faith in him and repent of your sins by turning to Jesus and, and putting all that you have in him, the scriptures say that you will be saved. And then it will be truly said of you that God foreknew you he predestined you. And you will be like the rest of us, just undeserving recipients of God's free bestowing of his grace. I want you to consider what great love God loves you with. What should you take away from this study the incredible, unfathomable love with which God loves you. Just think about it. He chose you before you were born, before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1.4 says, that you were chosen, that you were set apart, that God set his affections on you. You know what that means is that he didn't choose you because of you. He chose you despite you. He chose you for his own good pleasure, for his own glory, just because he is gracious and merciful. And he's loving. This is the love with which our Father loves us with. If we could actually understand this word foreknowledge, we could understand that we could actually translate it to mean for love. He loved you before you. He loved you before the world was created, before the foundations of the world that God has from eternity past loved you with an everlasting love. He has chosen in his own free will, chosen to set his affections on you. I think of the fact that God knew me personally before I was ever born. He knew what a mess I would make of my life. He knew it. He saw it. He foresaw what disaster Matt Cavazos would be. And he said, that one. This one is mine. 
couldn't deserve it. I couldn't possibly earn it. It was free. And if you are in Christ this moment, the same is said about you. He foresaw every one of your mistakes, of your backsliding, of your failure to keep your promises, of, of, of your anger. He saw every single time you would fall short. And he said, this one is mine. This one is mine. And he set his everlasting love on you. He chooses us despite us. He saved you by himself, unto himself, for himself. It truly has nothing to do with you or me. It's really all about God. Really, foreknowledge is about God's foreknowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. That God the Father loves His Son so much that He has promised Him a bride made up of redeemed sinners. So all throughout human history, God's plan of redemption is about collecting a bride that will be holy and blameless and spotless for His Son because He loves His Son. You know why if you are saved, you will always be saved is because God is not going to break his promise to his son. It's not about you or me. It's not about us. It's not about our choices, our, our choosing God or the, the prayer that you prayed one time or, or this, the goosebumps. It's not about that. It's that God has from eternity past made a covenant with his son and said, I will give you a bride and if you are in Christ this moment, you are part of that. And he will keep you until the end. Your responsibility is to live a life of gratitude in pursuit of holiness. God has from eternity past foreloved a people who he predestined to be saved. And to enact that salvation, he effectually calls them and then justified them in his sight through the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who he justified, he glorified. And it's spoken of in this way because what God has purposed to do will come to completion. It will happen. That means that if he has saved you, you will be saved. Your salvation is absolutely secure because you are not putting your trust in yourself. You are putting your trust in the everlasting love and sovereignty of God Almighty. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right 
hand of God who indeed is interceding for us who shall separate us then from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or nakedness or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, We owe you everything, God. Everything is yours. We have nothing to give you that you don't already own, Lord. Our lives are yours. The salvation that we have is yours. The faith that we put in you is yours. You gave it to us. The grace that we have been bestowed with is is yours. Everything belongs to you, God. I just pray that this produces in us worship, Lord, and gratitude, Lord, that we would worship you for who you are because it's beautiful who you are, that we would be grateful to you for what you've done because it's unthinkable what you have done for us. May we live lives of worship and gratitude until the day when we spend all of eternity in your glorious presence being grateful and worshiping you for every day in eternity. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.